Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogesville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. You can be seated. Children, I'll dismiss you in just a moment. I'd like to read to you the, the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. This is the text that Bill will be preaching on this morning. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he became he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. He said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But with this, the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. So every one of us here has people that we love and care about who are lost. It might be a son or daughter or parent or grandparent or grandchild or brother or sister or uncle, aunt, cousin, 
a neighbor, someone at work, someone at the ball field, we all have people that we love and care about who are lost, every one of us here. This morning I'm bringing you the second sermon in a two-part series that I'm calling Jesus and the Lost, primarily from the Gospel of Luke. And I explained last week what got me thinking about this is we just studied Jonah. I taught Jonah on Tuesday night and Jason was doing Jonah on Wednesday night in our community groups. And uh, to me, two of the main themes in Jonah is God is a God who acts and God is a God who saves. And if you combine those, God is a God who is active in bringing salvation to people. And that plays out in several ways in Jonah. And also we've got a a great uh, outreach opportunity this summer here in the community for the village. And so I got to thinking about outreach. And so Jonah and outreach all got me kind of thinking about this sermon series, Jesus and the Lost. I want to begin by reading two verses in Luke that give us part of Jesus' earthly mission. I have them up here. Jesus said, I've come to call the, not call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then later in his ministry, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And I don't have it up here, but I want to throw out another one of Jesus' mission statements in Mark 10, 45, where he said, um, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, he has done everything possible on the cross as he died in our place for our sins. He's done everything possible that's needed to ransom us who are lost sons and daughters. So this morning we're in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Last week I pointed out that there are three well-known parables in chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Last week we did the first two, the lost sheep and the lost coin. This morning, the prodigal son. Let me give you two short definitions I gave last week. I defined a parable as a, a story. Jesus used parables a lot. A uh, parable is a story that's rooted in real life. In other words, it's a, a story people can hear and think about and get their minds around. So it's a story rooted in real life. But the point of the parables is not the literal story, but the spiritual truth that Jesus teaches using those real life stories. All right, does that make sense? So a parable is a story meant to teach spiritual truth and also since Jesus uses the word lost uh, several times in the gospel I want to define again what I mean by that Um, if you think about it something lost is separated right from its owner and so when Jesus is using this term lost he's talking about people who are spiritually lost who are spiritually separated from their father, and uh, we're going to well, find out a little bit later that it's basically the same thing as being spiritually dead. So spiritually lost, spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God. Now as we study the three parables, I said last week, we've got to consider verses 1 and 2, which give us the setting for the parables, or give us the reason why Jesus gave the parables, and I covered these verses in detail last week, and I'm just going to very quick review here. Let me read it. 
Luke 15, 1-2. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. As I said last week, uh, in the setting for these three parables, there are two opposing pairs of people engaged in two contrasting actions. The two opposing pairs of people I have up here, verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes. Two totally opposite types of people in first century Israel. And they were engaged in two contrasting actions. Verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen or hear Jesus teach. In verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the parables of chapter 15 answer the charge of verse 2. The three parables explain why Jesus receives tax collectors and sinners. And last week we saw that the parables of the, or in the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, we, those focus on God's action, right? God, through Jesus, is actively seeking the lost whom Jesus came to seek and to save. All right, so God's action, actively seeking through Jesus the lost. Well, the third parable is just a little bit different, the parable of the prodigal son. It focuses on God's character, his compassion and willingness to both forgive the repentant younger son and plead with the angry older son. So last week I focused on our need to participate with Jesus as he actively seeks to find the lost. This morning I'm hitting it at a little different angle and I'm seeking to give us encouragement and hope, all right? I'm seeking to give us encouragement and hope as we think about people that we love and care about who are lost sons or daughters, neighbors, friends, family, etc. Try to give us some hope and encouragement. Verse 11 is the setting of the parable. I asked Jason to read the whole thing through this morning, all right? He did a great job. I asked him to read it because he's better at reading long passages than I am. All right, that's why I asked him. Uh, but I'm just going to do it verse by verse now. So you heard the whole thing. Now we're going to go in and kind of do Bible study verse by verse. All right? Verse 11 is the introduction to the parable. Jesus said, a man had two sons. Now this verse introduces us to the three main characters in the parable. A certain man and his two sons. In the context, the father was most certainly Jewish, and as the story unfolds, we discover that the father was a man of wealth, all right? A Jewish man of wealth. He had two sons, the younger son and the older son. The story has two distinct parts. In verses 12 to 24, the father and the younger son. Verses uh, 25 to 32, the father and the older son. I want you to catch this now. The father is in both parts of the story, placing the focus on the father. All right? Placing the focus on the father. In the parable, the father represents God or God working through Jesus, right? Luke tells us in verses 1 and 2 who the younger son and the older son are. The younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners 
who were coming to Jesus and repenting, not all the tax collectors and sinners who heard Jesus teach repented. Now, let's be certain of that. But some were, and the younger son represents them. The older son represents the Pharisees and scribes who were angry at Jesus, angry at Jesus for receiving tax collectors and sinners. Now, this parable has traditionally been called the parable of the prodigal son. That's what I'm calling it been called that for centuries uh, but it's not really very accurate because the parable really isn't about the younger son's prodigality that means uh, wastefulness but about his repentance so the parable of the repentant son would be better but that really isn't even accurate because the parable is about two sons the younger and the older the repentant son and the unrepentant older son and the father's relationship to both of them. So if I were the boss of giving names to parables, which I'm not, all right, if I were, I would call it the parable of the father and his two sons, or the parable of the father and his two lost sons, because both sons are lost, both the younger and the older son. Now it's Father's Day, right? Uh, I'm only going to make this short connection here. I was getting out of the shower last night, and I got to think about it, it's Father's Day. And in this parable, we have the ideal father, the ideal father who has compassion for his younger son and pleads with his older son. And, of course, the father represents God or God working through Jesus. So we have the ideal father, the perfect father, the Father that loves us and cares about us, our Heavenly Father. All right, the background of the parable is Old Testament Israel. Well, you say it's in the New Testament. This is before the cross, so we're still in that Old Testament era, and the background is Old Testament Israel. So keep this in mind as we interpret the parable. We're going to interpret the parable in its context and then seek to bring it to our lives here in Hogansville in the summer of 2022. Jews were born into the covenant community of Israel. All right? They were born into the covenant community of Israel. But not all Jews were saved. Now, being born into that covenant community had benefits, great benefits, but it was not enough. A Jew must place their faith in the God of Israel to be saved. See, Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed in God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Habakkuk 2, 4, uh, the righteous shall live by faith. See, there were many in Israel who were not saved. They were lost sons and daughters. Now, let me make an analogy here. See, being born into a Christian family or a church has its benefits, all right? It has its benefits, but it's not enough. One must have faith in Jesus to be saved. So there are many today in America who are born into Christian families, right? We all know some of them, maybe they're your sons and daughters, my sons, who are born into the church, had great benefits growing up, but they've never personally put their faith in Jesus and they're lost sons and daughters of God. Short testimony. I was born in 1956, downtown Atlanta, Georgia Baptist Hospital. I was raised in East Point, Georgia. 
as a baby, my parents enrolled me into the cradle roll at First Baptist Church of East Point, Georgia. Now, some of you are young. Most of you are young, actually. So I don't know if they still do this. But back then in the day, uh, traditionally, you were enrolled in the Sunday school. And then you would promote up each year, promote up. And I promoted up to the eighth grade when I was 13. And there was great benefit in that, great benefit. I learned so much about Jesus and salvation, the word of God, but I never personally put my faith in Christ. So at the age of 13, I was a lost son. I'll come back to that in just a minute. By the way, all of us are lost sons and daughters before Jesus finds us and saves us. This morning, I'm focusing on the younger son. I don't have time this morning to cover both. I want to focus on the younger son. And uh, I'll just point out to you that the older son represents the Pharisees and the scribes who are grumbling, angry at Jesus for ministering to people they thought were unfit for salvation. Uh, in Luke 18, 9 to 14, G um, Jason has actually read this parable a couple of times when we were in Peter. Uh, there's a parallel parable. It's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee there is equivalent to the older son in this parable we're studying. And the tax collector is equivalent to the younger son in the parable we're studying. So you can read those at your own convenience sometime. So the younger son, verses 12 to 24. Uh, verse 12 gives the son's request, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. He, he politely addressed his father, but in first century Jewish culture, the request would have been considered very disrespectful to come and ask your father of this. See, traditionally in Jewish homes, uh, the sons would work with their father in the father's business and inherit at the father's death. So by requesting his share of the inheritance early, he's breaking ties with his father. He's separating from his father. And the father's response, so he divided his wealth between them. I'd say to you that God gives people freedom to choose. He really does. Um, the son chose, and the father graciously gave the younger son his request. Now the younger son had no future claims upon his father's estate. Verse 13 tells us about the son's sins. It says, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. This verse describes three actions, all right? Three actions by the son. First, he gathered everything together. He converted his part of the estate to cash so he could easily gather it together. Second, he went on a journey into a distant country. We don't know where he went, but it was a distant country away from his father. A distant country in a pagan land away from his father. Now, for a Jewish, young Jewish man to go to a foreign country, it's not wise in itself, but a, for a young man to depart on a journey to a distant country with everything he owned was very foolish and could only end in disaster. 
So he converted his part of the estate to cash, he went to a distant country, and third, he squandered his estate with loose living. He squandered his estate. He wasted it. He spent all that he had. How? It says with loose living, by living a lost lifestyle of sin. Now that adverb translated loose, uh, sometimes little words are very important in the story. And that word translated loose is only used here in the New Testament. It's a little hard to translate into English with just one word, thus the many different English translations. For example, the New American Standard has with loose living. English Standard Version, with reckless living. The NIV and the New Living Translation, in wild living. The King James, with riotous living. New King James, with prodigal living. So... The translations of this little adverb are all over the place. Uh, the word is asatos, Greek word that Luke uses. It means literally not saved, not saved. It's related to the New Testament word soteria, which is the word, the main New Testament word for salvation, soteria, asatos, not saved, would be a simple way of translating it. It refers to unsaved living or living like an unsaved person. Loose living is debauched, prolific at life, partying, drinking, carousing. Verse 30 refers to prostitutes. These are unsaved sins, pagan lifestyle sins. In the parable, the youngest son, after he goes to the distant country, is living like an unsaved pagan. He was unsaved, but living like an unsaved pagan. And in first century Jewish context, this is shocking. I mean, I would say shocking for a young Jewish man from a good Jewish home to run off to a pagan land and live this kind of lifestyle and squander all that his father had worked so hard for. For many in Israel, it was inexcusable and unforgivable. Now keep that in mind. Inexcusable and unforgivable to engage in this kind of behavior. Well, come back to me for just a minute. Yeah. Promoted up to the eighth grade. Already I was beginning to come under uh, the influence of friends. Uh, up in East Point, the people I grew up with, going to school with, uh, playing ball with and all, all began to kind of drift. Many of them had been raised in the church and get into some pretty questionable behavior. And at the age of 13, I was given the option of dropping out of church. And I did. And began to, use, to live an asatos lifestyle. I'm not going to go into that. I'm not proud of it, but it's just part of my history. I was a rotten person. My parents did not deserve what I did for them. Dad, I'm sorry. But boy. So the younger son foolishly chose to separate from his father. He chose to go to a pagan country and live a lifestyle of sin, and his choices will have severe consequences, as we'll see in verses 14 to 16. In verse 14, famine leads to impoverishment. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. He spent everything. He squandered his inheritance with unsaved pagan sins. And a severe famine occurred, compounding his foolish, sinful decisions. Often happens, right? We make dumb decisions in life, and then something happens compounding those decisions. 
as a result of his lifestyle decisions compounding by, compounded by severe famine, he began to be impoverished. So think about this. The younger son's circumstances changed from wealthy young man to impoverished foreigner. Wealthy young man to impoverished foreigner. In verse 15, his poverty leads to feeding swine. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his field, fields to feed swine. At least he now responded wisely, right? He got a job. Uh, severe famine led to hardship for all. There was a shortage of food. The best he could do was hire himself out to one of the citizens of the country. He put himself under the authority of a pagan Gentile. He is now dependent on someone who doesn't care for him and his new employ employer sent him into the fields to feed swine. And now for a first century Jew to feed swine was one of the lowliest jobs, of the lowliest jobs. And his foolishness results in a double insult of the worst sort for a religious Jew like the Pharisees and scribes who are angry at Jesus, or the younger, older son, rather. He's working for a Gentile and feeding pigs. But it gets worse in verse 16. As, fam as famine leads to hunger, it says, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. There's a, a severe famine. There's a shortage of food. Food prices are sky high. Pay from the jobs, not even enough to buy food sufficient to sustain him. He's feeding pigs, but he has nothing to eat. The pigs are better off than he is. He did not even have pig food, and being a foreigner, no one, not even his employer, would give him help. Now, many Jews, like the Pharisees and the scribes and the older son, who heard the story, would have thought that the younger son was only getting what he deserved, only getting what he deserved. It's true that he's reaping the consequences of his sin, but fortunately, he had a father who still loved him, and the father's door was always open to a humble and repentant son. Always open to a humble and repentant son. Now, verses 17 to 19, we're moving right along here, describes the son's repentance. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? Feeding pigs and hunger and poverty had humbled him, and he came to his senses. Literally, he came to himself. He realized how arrogant and foolish he had been. And his realization is expressed in his words, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? but I'm dying here with hunger. And there's deep irony in his situation. First, the pigs have food and he doesn't. Second, his father's paid laborers are in better shape than he is. They had plenty of bread in contrast to the son who's dying from hunger. In verses 18 and 19, coming to his senses, he made a wise decision. I will get up and go to my father and will Say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now to speak of sinning against heaven is to acknowledge that one has sinned against God. 
and because he has taken his share of the inheritance, cut all his ties with his father and wasted his wealth, he's no longer worthy to be called his father's son. He accepts the consequences of his choices. There are no excuses. Notice that he did not make any excuses. There's only confession and a humble request of his father. Make me as one of your hired men. And I would say to us that the younger, sh- younger son shows what genuine repentance looks like. No excuses, just reliance on God's mercy and provision. No excuses, just reliance on, reliance on God's mercy and provision. Verses uh, 21 and 22 describe the son's return and confession. So verse 20, so he got up, came to his father. There's a very important little phrase, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son departs the distant country. He carries out his resolution to go to his father, and he confesses sin. How he got back, how long it took, isn't explained. That's not important in this story. What is important is that he came to his father. Now, we can only imagine what uh, shape the son was in. Surely, the son must have wondered what his father would do, how his father would respond to his confession. But he doesn't have to wait long because while he's still a long way off, his father, what, saw him and felt compassion for him. This is the most important verse in the parable. And the verb translated felt compassion. It's the key word in the parable. Uh, This is a compassion that leads to action and explains why Jesus receives tax collectors and sinners. Why did Jesus have this ministry to these outcasts in Israel? Because of his father's deep compassion for them. With deep compassion, the father ran and embraced his son and kissed him. Eagerly embracing his son, kissing him, expressed his compassion, forgiveness, and acceptance. You see, genuine repentance brings reconciliation and restoration with the father. The son expressed his confession to his father. He worked this out when he was still out in a distant country, and he basically repeats the words that he worked out. Father, he says to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the humble confession leaves the son in the hands of his father. And that's what genuine repentance does, really. It places oneself in the hands of a compassionate God. Genuine repentance places oneself in the hands of a compassionate God. So here we're at the very end of the story, or the first half of the story, and verses 22 and 24 give the father's response. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. I think we can only assume that the son was ill-clad and in poor physical condition, the best robe and a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, killing the fattened calf, or symbolic of the father's lavish love and complete acceptance. 
I don't know if you know this, but meat was rarely eaten at meals in first century Israel. They had more of a vegetarian kind of diet, fruit and vegetables, grains. Uh, the fattened calf was an animal fed and prepared for special occasions like a religious holiday or special family event. It would take hours to prepare and cook the fattened calf and it would be enough to lead many people, I'm sorry, to feed many people. So I'm assuming that invitations went out to friends and neighbors to come eat and celebrate with them. And compare verse nine and six and nine where the shepherd and woman in those two parables invite friends and neighbors to come rejoice. The father said, let us eat and celebrate. The verb translated celebrate means to joyously celebrate, to joyously celebrate. This compares to verse 7 and 10 in the first two parables where God, angels, and heavens rejoice when the lost are found. Verse 24 gives the reason for the uh, celebration. The father said, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. So the son goes from destitution to restoration, from alienation to reconciliation. There are really two kind of synonymous um, pictures of salvation that happens when a sinner repents. He said, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Lost and dead refer to the same spiritual condition, spiritually lost, spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God. Being found and coming to life both picture salvation. So think about this, being found, uh, the salvation of the younger son uh, pictures Jesus' mission expressed in Luke 19.10 to seek and to save that which was lost. Coming to life, I'm going to read a, just a couple of verses from John real quick. Um, going out, I'm going to be right back to Luke, but uh, another one of, um, well, John 5, 24 said, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, remember uh, the Pharise uh, tax collector and the sinners were coming to hear Jesus. Jesus says, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And John 10, 10, another one of Jesus' mission statements. He said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. All right, so that's that part of the parable kind of in its first century context. Now let's think about how this affects us. And I got four lessons here. Getting toward the end here. Four lessons from the first half of the parable. First, sin has consequences. Always has, always will. It don't matter if you're lost or found, dead or alive. Sin has consequences. In the parable, the pig pen is symbolic of the consequences of sin and of a sinful lifestyle. Now, I want to say to you that God is actively seeking the lost, and he doesn't deal with every lost son and daughter in the same way. He doesn't send everybody to the same severity of the pig pen that the younger son goes to in the story. But God does send wake-up calls, wake-up calls to lost sons and daughters. You see, when we are lost, we will not leave sin. We will not get, get saved until we see our need for salvation. There is no salvation before seeing the need for salvation. And 
The consequences of sin are often God's wake-up call designed to turn us back to himself. So sin has consequences. Second, salvation requires a decision to repent and believe. Now this parable is not a story about how to get saved, all right? It's a story about God's unending compassion for lost sons and daughters and his desire for their repentance and salvation. But we do have in the parable the example of the son's repentance. And we see from the parable that salvation requires a humble decision to repent and believe, and repentance brings reconciliation with God and restoration of relationship. I would say to you that in the New Testament, faith and repentance are kind of flip sides of the same coin. Flip sides of the same coin, you might say. Repentance means to change your mind and your direction or come to your senses, as we have here in the parable. To believe is to put your faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. See, salvation demands us to change our mind about Jesus and our sin and to put our faith and trust in him alone for salvation. For me, that happened when I was 20 years old. And as I said, from 13 to 20, I lived a asatos lifestyle, pagan, sinful lifestyle. And I won't go into the long story, but in 1976, God began to deal with me and convict me of my sin and my need for salvation. I was invited by an older couple to attend church with them. I said, yes, I hadn't been to church since the eighth grade, and the pastor was preaching through the Gospel of John. And surprisingly to myself, I was the most shocked person in the building when I accepted the invitation at the age of 20 to put my faith in Christ. And God, working through Jesus, found me and saved me and brought me to life. So I ask, what about you? Where are you? Where are you? It's the most important question. Most important, let me rephrase, the most important decision we'll ever make in life is what we do with Jesus. Third, God never gives up on the lost. My parents could have gave up on me. Uh, In the parable, the father could have given up on the younger son, but God never gives up on the lost. In the parable of the lost sheep and lost coin, God actively seeks the lost. In the parable of the prodigal son, the father actively watches for his lost son. Every one of us here has a son or daughter or grandchild or parent or brother or sister or friend or neighbor or people that we love and care about deeply who are lost sons and daughters. Luke 15 tells us that the lost are valuable and important to God and that he has an active compassion, an active compassion for all lost sons and daughters whom Jesus came to seek and to save. There's never anyone so lost that God cannot and will not give them salvation. It is never too late. No one is ever too far gone. When it comes to salvation, all things are possible with God. Now, this parable doesn't guarantee that all our lost loved ones will will be found. We know that. It does guarantee that God's active compassion offers salvation, restoration, forgiveness, and acceptance to them. Unfortunately, 
Not everyone who goes to the pig pen comes to their senses. Some in the pig pen choose to be more arrogant, more defiant, more separated from God. But God never stops loving the lost, and Jesus never stops seeking them. That's a very important truth. So for us, we must never uh, stop loving, never stop praying, never stop persevering for, never lose hope for the lost ones that we love and care about. Never. You might say, and I would say to you, but you might say, I've been praying for so-and-so for a long time, and it seems hopeless that they will ever turn around and come to faith in Christ. But see, we don't put our hope in lost people. Putting hope in lost people is hopeless. We put our hope in the God who's active in saving lost people. That's where our hope is, not in the lost person, but in a God who loves our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors who need salvation. So, who do you need to keep loving, persevering, persevering for, praying for, not giving up hope for? Who? Never give up. Never lose hope. For with God, all things are possible. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24-26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace.